Ahoy mateys, all hands on deck for the greatest podcast I've ever had a hand in doing. Hands down, I feel you will learn a lot from this handy topic I'm going to be discussing with you shortly. Today is Carpal Tunnel Syndrome. Welcome to Therapist in Motion Podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. My apologies if all the wordplay got on your median nerve. I'm sure you guys have some fun puns to play with, and I would like to thank Jen Lee for that excellent joke right there on the median nerve. Very good work. Anyway, today we will be talking about carpal tunnel syndrome. Joining me is Dan Mirowski. Hello. Jen Lee. Word. And a wonderful first-time guest on our podcast, Hannah Wash. Hello. Hannah is a hand therapist, an occupational therapist here at Spooner Physical Therapy out of our Glendale location. So thank you all for being here today. So as we're just going to hop right into it, looking at our Google results, a very common exercise we saw was a lot of static stretching, um, whether it was wrist extensors, wrist flexors, things along those lines, even opening the hand up. Just going to open to the panel. What do you guys feel about static stretching for someone who has a known carpal tunnel diagnosis? I'm a little wary about it. Um, I always want to make sure people aren't pushing to extremes when they're doing static stretches. And a lot of those Google searches show full flexion, full extension, which is something I do worry about because you tension the median nerve a little bit. Is there anything in particular you're looking at as far as what is the end range it's safe? Is it patient-dependent success? Is it a pain response? What is your parameters that you might use to determine this? I base it off of patient symptoms. So if they have tingling, they get numbness, increased symptoms with a stretch, they're going too far. So I try to do, you know, a stretch where they have some stretching feeling in their forearms, okay, but I don't want to increase any numbness, tingling in their in their hand. Yeah, that's why I would say I'm worried about static stretching too. Um, and I think of it more, since I don't treat the hand all the time, I think of it more globally as just affecting the neural system. Would I give somebody a neural mob and have them hold it? anywhere in the body. No, I don't typically do that. I typically have them go in and out of that stretch because you don't know what other parts of the system are restricted either. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Again, I don't treat the hand wrist very often. I always tell patients, you might not want me treating the hand wrist based upon my OCS uh, exam scores from those two sections. (laughs) Um, But but thanks to some mentorship from our hand team here, um, I I have a greater comfort and confidence than I did previously. Um, But I think, again, with that, that compressive load, like Hannah alluded to, that that nervous ten- that tissue is very, very sensitive. And if we have proof that is indeed um, carpal tunnel related, um, increasing compression on a nerve may not be something that I would suggest performing on a frequent basis without very close symptom monitoring. Makes sense. I mean, like you guys talked about, when you're doing a stretch, what are you actually stretching? What are you feeling with it? As Hannah was alluding to, are you feeling something more proximal in the arm form? Is it muscular? Even maybe a mild nerve but without neural symptoms. So I don't want you guys to comment on is, does a nerve stretch? You know, if we're talking about an issue that is a nerve compressive issue and we're doing static stretching for them, are you going to get a nerve to actually stretch with just a static motion? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Here's my answer. I think it doesn't necessarily stretch. I think there's a given two, two and a half inch mobility that you can get from a nerve through the entire system. But you have to consider, again, it's one system head to toe and you don't know if you're going to get that full mobility or how much mobility you're going to get around just that one joint when you're doing that motion. If you can get all of that motion, maybe it's not going to be as irritable, but I'm guessing that's not going to happen to somebody with acute carpal tunnel. 
Yeah, I'd be wary of someone, you know, with acute carpal tunnel doing a static hold, you know, on a median nerve. So I would want them more, you know, moving in and out of that stretch. It's something that I would be very wary of. I think it would be provocative, increase their symptoms. Yeah, you know, going to that question about does a nerve actually stretch, you know, I think there's still something that maybe we'll see during our practice lifetime about looking at um, micro neurovascular structures to see what what something that may be in that sheath of that nerve that we haven't quite been able to find. But as far as is it similar to other connective tissue in the body in its makeup, I would say no. I mean, yeah, I think, gosh, we're gonna, I'm going to reference histology this time. And I referenced kinesiology earlier. Man, like Apparently, Nerd PT school alert. is coming back. Yeah, um, I thought you were going to go fully and define what's dura matter. And oh no, I, will, and I, I thought I you were going that. <laughs> that might bore people too much. It might stimulate me, but it bore them too much. Um, I, I, I think again, it goes bong to kind of like what Hannah and Jen alluded to is what's happening in the entire system. Are you getting the entire system to move? And if you get that neurovascular bundle to glide and slide effectively around that tissue. Sure, then maybe at that point, do I really care if it's elongating and stretching or do I care that it's not getting compressed and stuck in some place that is causing their familiar symptom? I mean, so I'm hearing a lot of the same things here. I mean, again, as we've talked about many times within this podcast series, there's a time and a place for everything. There is a place for static stretching. I think we've all agreed we can utilize it. But if utilizing that and that solely, which unfortunately a number of Google programs are just static stretches and a couple of other simple things, you're probably not going to get to the full picture. I'm hearing a lot of dynamic stretching, dynamic mobility, and I'm going to include neural glides within this piece. So just a general, whether it is a active uh, tissue release for an individual or a nerve glide or anything along those lines, what do we think about dynamic stretching and dynamic mobility through that entire upper extremity through the full chain? Um, I love giving nerve glides for carpal tunnel. I like to give full, you know, proximal to distal nerve glide. Um, and I start in a really easy range of motion for them that's not provocative at all. So sometimes that doesn't mean they're going very far. And usually it doesn't look like the Google searches at all. Um, <laughs> but I love the dynamic stretches. And it is something I give as long as it's symptom-free and pain-free. It's something that I, I usually always give with carpal tunnel. That's a great answer, and that's exactly what I was going to say, too, is, is starting proximally, if you're actually taking them slowly into that stretch, you're not going to get nearly as far as a lot of the pictures that I was that I saw when I was looking up. And actually going into a, a median nerve tension test, it's amazing how quickly sometimes that'll just, boom, pick up. So if you have somebody at home going into that full, I, I could almost see like a traction type of irritation happening there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as we think about what that upper uh, limb neural tension test looks like where, you know, you're testing them statically on the table, um, I think there's, there's some opportunity there with my dynamic mobility of, of that of that nerve. What do you want to call it? The median nerve or the radial nerve or the ulnar nerve. I, I think once it gets down into the forearm, all of those need to move, even if they are getting carpal tunnel-like symptoms. Um, so what I try and do is I try and find an area of success in a preposition and then move something off of that preposition. So whether I preposition their elbow and move their hand, I preposition their scapula and move their elbow, or I preposition their hand wrist and move their trunk, um, 
that's how I approach that dynamic stretching related to, you know, a nerve mobilization. Dan, I want you to expand on that a little bit. Something I always find interesting is what do you make the mobile segment? Do you have multiple mobile segments? Do you make the wrist the mobile segment? I'm talking about nerve glides only. Is the elbow the mobile segment, the shoulder, is it the neck? Do you do a neck and hand in conjunction both off and on together to get a full system glide? There's a lot of ways to do this. What are your guys' thoughts on what do you make the mobile structure? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point about what is the mobile structure. And I think that there's a lot of variability on that based upon, again, their symptoms and, and their severity of symptoms. Like Hannah and Jen alluded to a little bit earlier, if they're in that acute stage, I'm I'm probably only going to be moving one segment and I'm going to try and pre-position them as close to the end range without completely flaring their symptoms as possible. And then maybe not move into wrist flexion extension, but maybe ulnar and radial deviation or make a fist and go into a new back to a neutral resting finger position. Um, but I think there's something to be said about what, what you're alluding to is potentially you may take them into wrist extension while ipsilaterally or same side laterally bend their cervical spine. And then as they move into wrist flexion, I may take them to the opposite side lateral or contralateral side bend of their cervical spine to assist with that entire system glide. Um, so hopefully that kind of answers part of that question. Um, and then I want <laughs> you two to allude to that as well. I like the, you know, almost, it's like a proximal distal slide, like you're talking about. I'm going to move the wrist one way, I'm going to move the head the other, and then I'm going to get the, the glide the opposite way by reversing it. Um, I see that happening in my manual work a little bit more than HEP. If I'm going to give somebody an HEP, I want it to be, people don't understand nerve mobility, they don't understand nerves at all. So as specific as I can get where you're only moving... Like, do this, do this, and do this. Don't tick it off. Don't go further than you need to go. Um, and try to just educate them as much as possible on, I don't want to have that symptom. I don't want you to pr- produce that symptom, provoke that symptom, and hold it. I want you to feel it and come out of it. Feel it, come out of it. So it's more specific. I totally agree with that. When I give home exercise program nerve glides, usually I say, no pain, no stretch. This should be super easy. You should be like, why am I doing this? Um, But in the clinic when we're doing the manual, I'm okay with, you know, what Dan was saying with, you know, going to that point of almost stretching that nerve a little bit. But I like to start um, very easily, do one segment at a time, see how they do with it, see how their symptoms are, and then I'll add in more segments. And then usually I end with head and I'll have them go to the, you know, opposite side, bend with their heads if they can tolerate it. So it's something that we build as they come in to the clinic. I want to put a quick shout out to Andrew Walquist. Um, he was one of the driving forces behind our analogy um, <clears throat> podcast that did quite well. And I want to bring up something Jen said. A lot of patients don't understand how the nerve moves. Do you guys have an analogy or an education or something you'd like to discuss with your patient to help them understand why you're doing a nerve glide or what the purpose is or just how the nerve in general moves and how the compressive forces can happen at multiple segments more than just the carpal tunnel itself? Anything you found successful within that? I think the easiest thing for me to see visually is saying that a nerve is like, have you ever been fishing? Yes. Do you know what a fishing line feels like? There's a little tension in it. You can pull it a little bit, but you can't pull it too much. Otherwise, it snaps. And a nerve is not necessarily going to snap. I don't want to freak you out. <laughs> but, but it doesn't have the normal stretch of a muscle and the ability to contract and relax like a muscle does. It's going to have a very different tension to it. And we have to respect that because it's all connected 
as one tissue throughout the entire body. And it's not even just connected to itself. It's connected to vasculature and everything else around it. And so you have to respect the entire system when you're mobilizing that. And that's why we don't want to hold it and go out and hold that fishing line as tight as we can and then release it. So it helps people see a little bit more visually. It helps me see anyway. I'm going to steal that. I love that analogy. Um, Usually I tell people it's flossing. It's like when you floss your teeth, you know, you don't stay in one spot. You're going in and out. You know, it's nice, gentle gliding. And then when it comes to compression, usually I talk about nerves as a garden hose. Garden hoses, you know, water's coming out the end. If you have a compression, someone's standing on the garden hose, nothing's coming out. And so we have to move it back and forth. We have to get that compression off. Um, So usually that's when I'm talking about the wrist, the compression at the wrist. But um, I love the analogy of the fishing. I'm going to use that. Sure. I've even gone as far as taking actual string out and literally use a string to demonstrate the nerve in their body and do things such as put my hand where the clavicle might be or the pec minor might be or something we know can be a neural compressive area. Like Jen said, it has a lot of structures that have to be able to move around and those things can put gentle pressure and even impinge the nerve. Sometimes that visual can be successful for patients and when they're having a hard time understanding where you're trying to go with things. So that leads me to a question for you, or you all. I'm not taking questions today. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Awkward. Um, so you 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 mentioned clavicle, you mentioned scapula. Um, how often? I mean, obviously, carpal tunnel is right there at the wrist, and we're we're kind of focusing more on stretching that, but then looking through the entire system. How often are you clearing the neck? How often do you find issues in the neck, scapula, even pectorals, all the way down? where that nerve is, is going. Almost always. <laughs> Figured. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, I always, I like to look proximal if I can. So it's not just looking at the wrist. I like to look at elbow. I like to look at shoulder. I like to get past history. You know, have you had any issues with your shoulder before? Is there anything going on with your neck? Um, and then usually exercises in clinic, exercises for home, always incorporate some type of scapular stabilization, some type of thoracic movement. Um, I, I think moving proximally is usually a, a big, I don't know how to say that. Um, but moving proximally is a good way to help distally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, no, no, that's good. So, so I, you know, in the in, in the realm of, of making sure that we stick to being evidence informed practitioners, um, in the latest JS, JOSPT from February two, 2019 is actually perfect timing for this podcast because um, there was a study published about the cost effectiveness of of evaluation of manual physical therapy versus surgery for carpal tunnel, um, and this was this study I believe was done in well it was done in Spain. All right, so. Dollars and cents aren't quite adding up because that's not what they use in Spain. But they did talk about the the group that received manual therapy. It was only three 30-minute sessions, and it was soft tissue mobilization at anatomical sites of entrapment of the median nerve, so some of the things you guys have already alluded to, as well as lateral glides to the cervical spine, tendon and nerve gliding exercises, and then an educational section. And, and the interesting thing was after those three sessions, it significantly reduced the likelihood that they were going to need surgery. And obviously this group was looking at cost savings. Well, no surprise, there was a massive cost effectiveness of physical slash hand therapy compared to a surgical intervention, right? But I think going back to Jen's question about looking at those proximal sites, if we don't look proximally, there's a chance we're going to miss something, right? And, and instead of getting that patient 90 or 95% of symptom improvement, we may only get 
50 to 75 percent right which hopefully will still assist with them achieving a quality of life improvement um, but maybe not as much as we could get by going more proximally into you know that that pec region that subscap mm-hmm. region that axilla region you know ribs two three four and sideline mm-hmm. that cervical spine to making sure that all of those components of that system whether it's nerve fascial vascular musculature have the ability to glide and slide together I mean, I look at this very much just like the low back. If I have a low back pain patient in and they have moderate to severe disc degeneration, I'm not going to magically reinflate their disc for them. What it takes, right? <laughs> I'm gonna try. I'm gonna take stress. Off. I'm gonna take stress off of the area and by addressing things that I can address. If there's a physiological change at the carpal tunnel, I'm not going to magically change it. I'm not performing a carpal tunnel release. The things I can impact are the things proximal, up the chain, median nerve mobility through the entire chain. As was alluded to elsewhere, other nerves that connect to it, the entire brachial plexus, we get into the neck, the T-spine. The things I can change are all of those. There are a lot of times where they might have severe um, issues within the uh, carpal tunnel and they're trying to avoid surgery. And my job is not going to be sit there and rub across their carpal tunnel. My job is going to say, I'm going to free up every piece of mobility through the entire chain I possibly can and hope that that's enough to, even though there will always be some pinch across your carpal tunnel and your median nerve, because we all have decreased conduction at the carpal tunnel. If you've ever read any neuroconduction study, you're, you're going to see that. Um, <laughs> And hope that freeing up also is going to be enough that that compression that's there won't continue to produce symptoms or at least diminish the severity of symptoms and improve the function that you have. Yeah, I I think that's a huge component that Paul just alluded to for our listeners is to say, wait, just because an EMG shows that they have irritated median nerve as it goes through the carpal tunnel doesn't mean that we can't help them, right? Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's a huge opportunity for us to impact our patient population, knowing that there is a high probability that there are patients out there walking around with quote unquote carpal tunnel syndrome, but that doesn't mean that they have no hope and that their only that their only option is a surgical intervention. And I'm also not trying to belittle our wonderful hand surgeons that do a great job of decompressing the carpal tunnel and, and providing symptomatic relief if they have a exhausted conservative type approaches. Right. So. I always think, and this is not even specific to nerves, but if you put the body in a better position, if you get it moving better, the body has an amazing ability to heal on its own. So my job is not to heal the carpal tunnel. My job is to get everything around it moving as best as possible and let the magic happen on its own. It's important to to ask Hannah, do you see a lot of people post carpal tunnel release? Yes, I do. So even again, same thing. I imagine you're still looking up the chain looking. So again, we can still make an impact. Even if let's like Dan said, they've tried conservative measures. It's not appropriate. They do do a release. We still have the need to look through the entire chain and address the mobility of the entire nerve if we can. And anything else that you look at beyond what we talked about already, Hannah? Um, yeah, CJ like to look at ergonomics, talk a lot about what they're doing throughout the day, you know, especially at work, um, even driving. Sometimes I find that people have like a 45 minute drive and they don't have an ergonomic setup in their car. Sometimes we'll be more prone to having carpal tunnel. So, um, after I get someone who has a release, definitely we look up the chain. Like I said, we always do scapular stabilization. Um, and then, you know, we might not be able to do too much at the wrist right after a carpal tunnel release, but there's lots of other things that we can do proximally. For sure. 
So we've talked some about static. We talked some about dynamic mobility. Um, let's go into resistive exercises. Uh, I saw some resistive finger abduction types of things. I saw a, a number of different things for the hand, for the wrist. Where do you guys feel about just general resistive exercises? Let's start with local, so hand and wrist types of things, and we can talk about uh, other parts of the body after that. So local strengthening. I'm really wary about it because patient education is so important because anytime you're making a fist and you're bending that wrist, you're closing off that carpal tunnel. So a lot of those resisted exercises that you can find on Google, I'm, a, I'm wary of them because I want to make sure people are doing them correctly. Um, and I'm also wary of going in and doing strengthening right away of someone because if they're inflamed, you know, muscles are inflamed, that nerve's irritated, going and doing strengthening is probably not the best idea. So it depends on where they are in their their recovery um, when I do resistive exercises. Yeah, I was going to say too, if you're thinking right at the carpal tunnel, I mean, it's going through with different tendons and, and you're not even guaranteed that these tendons are going to be sliding and gliding normally if that nerve isn't sliding and gliding normally. So I could see it potentially even being harmful to do resisted stuff and actually increase inflammation in the area. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of take that as <clears throat> like I did with the, with the neuromobility and I'm going to, I'm going to pre-position them and then drive them off of that to get a different type of quote unquote strengthening, right? It, it may not be your traditional resistive exercise, um, but you're still going to get a kinesthetic and proprioceptive loading through that system. Um, so I may have to do a closed fist and a neutral wrist um, to then start getting some input back into that joint, uh, both through the elbow and through the wrist. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, if we think about it, the majority of the people coming in outside of, let's say, a skilled um, like, you know, like a day laborer who, you know, a carpenter, a tile person, a blacksmith, you know, somebody like that, that's using their hand all day, every day, really the rest of the majority of us don't have to have an extremely large, like flexor mass to be able to perform our main activities of daily living. Right. So when I think about that, it's like, but they're doing something repetitively over a long time, not necessarily from a force production standpoint. So I think if you look at it from a localized wrist standpoint, hand wrist standpoint, potentially a lower load and a longer duration may be more successful for that individual as opposed to trying to have do, you know, the, the 25 pound wrist extension to wrist flexion curls over the edge of a table. Yeah, Danny, you hit on something very important there. I mean, I think we typically look at carpal tunnel as a repetitive use type of injury. April and Langis even said, you know, are you having a longer drive to work and that can put you at greater risk? I don't think two sets of 10 is going to greatly encapture what is true function for these people when you're probably having neural irritation for them. It's probably, yeah, I'm sure there is an example out there where someone did something within a one or two minute time frame that is the stressor on it, but oftentimes it's a repetitive issue through the entire day or that repetitive position with poor ergonomics at their keyboard, desk, etc., whatever it might be. Um, so I think you hit on something we're looking again at how do we make it functional? How do we address their actual needs? And is it going to be a longer duration, lower load repetition with awareness of where your body should be and how it should function? I think you're definitely keying on a very important topic here. Well, and one other thing I've just seen from my years of 
playing competitive tennis and, and now treating tennis players is, I think going back to Hannah's comment about ergonomics, there's also something related to grip size. And so, you know, you have that skilled labor or you're looking at an ergonomics <clears throat> setup, potentially even on the steering wheel, is if that is too small of a grip, what are they going to tend to do? They're going to tend to grip it probably really hard, hard right? Versus if it's too big, what's going to happen? They're not going to grip. Mm -hmm. They may not feel like they have full control over the hammer or the tennis racket or, you know, whatever else they may be swinging using. Mm -hmm. And so what's going to happen? They're going to grip really hard, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. I think that's something that when you, you know, you mentioned ergonomics, Hannah, mm -hmm. uh, of also looking at what you know, the tool or the device that they're using and saying, does this fit your hand? Right. And if it doesn't fit your hand, is that more of a stressor right. than absolutely th than the actual nerve conduction change that we yeah. see in, in a test from a surgeon, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. I, I usually tell people, you should have a natural arch of your hand when you're gripping, not if you're gripping too much or your hand is open too much, it's it's too much. Mm -hmm. So you have to have those natural formed arches and that kind of gripping, you know, throughout the day with work is what we want while you're recovering and you're healing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to switch up back to the resisted thing a little bit. Um, but I think that it's super important if you're going to do, I don't think it's bad to do resisted full body things, but that therein lies understanding the specific anatomy of the median nerve. Where's it going? Where's it coming from? Where's it going? How can I slack the system and still get a functional motion out of this person? Do I have to reach up behind them? Okay, I know that's going to that's gonna tension that nerve. Maybe I can keep the wrist bent a little bit more, give them a weight if they can do it successfully, have them reach up in that direction, still get that neural mode, but I've slacked it a little bit um, or whatever it may be or rotating the forearm in out whatever's more successful for them yeah i mean we kind of were talking a little bit uh you know local strengthening things and as jen's saying you know you have to look at the entire chain so let's go distally and i know hannah's repetitively said you know looking at sta scapular stabilization from scapular i'm sorry approximately Di <laughs> distal from the median nerve obviously that's how that body works thank you good catch dan i appreciate it approximately Looking proximally at strengthening, what else are we looking at or what else are we doing and why? Um, like we we're saying, scapular stabilization, totally. Um, I'm okay with doing resisted that way. So prone scapular things, if they can tolerate it, if it's not too much on the nerve. And same thing like what Jen was saying, putting them in a prepositioned position that doesn't aggravate their nerve. Um, but doing things to work on their scapular stabilization, low rows, you know, things with resisted bands, all that's okay. That's kind of strengthening, you know, right off the bat, usually I'm okay with doing with someone. Yeah, thinking um, anatomically, it's coming from anywhere from C5 to T1. It's going to dive down underneath the clavicle. Um, you're going to have the pectoral tissue there too. People with increased compression there probably also have restricted, let's say it's the right side. They might not be able to rotate to the right because that pec is really, really tight. Or they may have limited lateral flexion of their thoracic spine or limited rotation of the thoracic spine that's putting too much compression and putting, pull, pulling them forward, not allowing that specific m mobility. And that's something that people do all the time, have to reach, have to cross body, um, have to reach down by their side. If they're not having, they don't have that good mobility in those structures, you're going to be 10 times more likely to have an irritation at the median nerve. 
Yeah, I mean, really looking anatomically is such a key to this. I mean, even when they're doing exercises, are they breathing appropriately? Or are we getting accessory muscles and breathing? Like Jen said, you're looking at C5 to T1. If you're looking at median nerve specifically, it's obviously the more cranial component to that. So then you're looking at anterior scaling compression, which you can look again, like the breathing, other things. There's just a lot of things anatomically you can look at to say, am I addressing everything in the chain this person needs? And how are they moving? And how are they working? And how are they doing their activities? To go back to, as you guys have mentioned, what is their daily job? What is their daily routine? that then you can find some other things that you can do that might be the bigger stress reliever for them. I do have one question for Hannah because I tend to feel like this comes up a lot. You talked really well about ergonomics and stuff. What about vibration, uh, vibrative forces like a construction worker might have? Are there things you'd like to have them avoid or do or not do, especially in that acute component of the healing process for carpal tunnel? Yes. Usually we try to avoid vibration right off the bat if we can. Um, If you can't, then it's doing what we had already talked about, like doing the the neutral wrist with, you know, a natural formed arch of the hand with grasping if you can't get away from it. Because I know some people, they just, they have to do it for their, for, for work. But if you can use the other arm or you can get someone to help, yeah, if you can avoid vibration, for sure. Well, I think we have some good, very good stuff today. Um, before I wrap up, does anyone have anything they want to comment on that we haven't discussed or any last minute keys and tips you wanted to throw out there for the listeners? Of course we do. I, I, I do have one and, and I really wish sometimes that this was a vlog because you guys really miss Jen like dancing through her thoracic spine when she was talking about those <laughs> interventions. <laughs> um, but, you know, going to the vibration component, I think what Hannah alluded to as far as helping to absorb that vibration during a task required for work is one thing, but I, I've seen some success putting an individual on like a power plate or a vibe plate and taking them through a nerve glide or a nerve floss um, and had some success across that. I've had the people from power plate or vibe plate tell me that, Oh, you got muscle elongation during that 30 seconds. And I said, no, 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 I didn't. I, that, that, that did not happen. Um, so that that is something to potentially think about mm-hmm. if a patient can tolerate standing on the vibe plate or power plate, which some people can't because mm-hmm. it just makes their nose go bonkers or their head rattle or mm-hmm. something like that. But if they can successfully tolerate that vertical vibration force mm-hmm. through their entire system as they're going through a nerve glide floss, whatever you want to call it, that is one little treatment nugget I have seen be somewhat successful with both upper and lower extremity nerve type injuries. And Dan did say this, but I want to make sure it is very clear. It is important that they are standing during that. We are looking at something cranially. I'm sure you have plenty of patients like, oh, let's just have them sit. It does change how the vibration moves up the chain since that was coming from plate on the floor. So you do want them in a standing non-flexed position to truly get that benefit. There might, I don't know if you've ever tried it in a squatted position, Dan. I haven't seen any research on that for general neuromobility, but you do want standing fully erect appropriate posture with that, just as a side clinical note. And just to kind of explain, I think that that, and I could be wrong, you guys can correct me, that works by virtue of kind of decreasing sensitivity through the entire nervous system, um, which is what he had talked about in the research article. Anything to decrease central nervous system sensitivity is going to help. So anything, you know, I'll do dry needling to do the same thing. So I feel like um, outside of looking at total body mobility, if you think more globally about the nervous system, about people's stress levels, about their hydration, about their diets, and we could go on forever and talk about it. Um, But in addition to that, their exercise. And I know you had talked about finding um, yoga Mm -hmm. that can actually be helpful for people to get the entire body moving, mobilizing the nervous system at the same time and decreasing that sensitivity. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yoga I like as an option. It just depends on how acute they are and what their symptoms are. Obviously, some of those um, positions in yoga are very compressive mm-hmm. for the carpal tunnel. Um, so it's just it's with caution. But I do like a lot of yoga movements. They're very similar to Gary Gray mm-hmm. kind of movements with a lot of those positions. So getting the whole body moving is awesome. And then something we didn't talk about is if they have bilateral carpal tunnel Mm -hmm. so if they have that then definitely you know full body movements 3d maps trying to figure out what's going on more proximally because at that point you're kind of guaranteeing there's probably something going on in through the chest or the neck or something like that i love it guys great suggestions great input lots of stuff like jen said we keep going on diaphragmatic breathing and all kinds of neural calming things forever and ever but y'all have questions on other ideas and thoughts along lines you know where how to find us please send an email out to therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Otherwise, thanks to you all for listening and have a great day.